The Joy Unleashed show empowers and inspires women to reclaim their joy. We provide tools, resources, and connections to help you unlock your true potential through engaging conversations, expert insights, and transformative stories. We create a vibrant and inclusive community where women can break free from the limitations that hold them back. I'm joyologist Colleen Greco, and it is my honor to be your host. Let's get right into the show. Welcome back to another edition of Joy Unleashed. I'm your humble host, Colleen Greco, and your resident joyologist. And I'm thrilled today to welcome Casey Kanghead to the show. Casey is a remarkable woman, and I'll have her share her miraculous story that is filled with hope, gratitude, perseverance, and of course, joy. And she is yet another example of someone who has taken their trauma and turned it into triumph. So without further ado, let's welcome Casey to the show. Hi, Colleen. Thank you so much for having me. I'm genuinely grateful to be here with you today. I'm so excited to have you and to get through our discussion and have you, uh, you know, impart your wisdom to the audience because I think your story is really special. It's really inspiring. And the work you're doing now is is really important that we get the word out uh, mm-hmm. about that. So um, in advance of that, I really want to thank you for your candor, your vulnerability, um, and just being willing to share your story. Well, thank you um, for allowing me to share my story. It's uh, it's wild. <laughs> so why don't you, um, if it's okay, if you can kind of take a trip back to um, a few years ago, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and I know you'll you'll get to this, but you had a you had a cancer diagnosis. So, like, where were you in your life? How did this all come to be? And, um, you know, kind of take us through that journey, if you will. Yeah, I'll give you the brief brief story. Um, I am a three time cancer survivor from acute lymphoblastic leukemia, and in 2014, I was diagnosed on Valentine's Day, um, and the induction uh, phase of my treatment is very aggressive. And so I was immediately hospitalized for a month. Um, Four months into my treatment, I had a stroke and had to relearn how to walk and use my entire left side of my body. Uh, That was one of the darkest moments throughout the journey um, that I had where I really had to dig deep to get through it. Um, fast forward 18 months later, I finished chemotherapy. I was in remission. And seven weeks later, they told me my cancer was back. And that is when it got scary. Um, you know, originally when I went into treatment, they said it's a 97% cure rate. We're like, that's great odds. <laughs> and now I'm part of the 3%. So they also told me when we went back into the hospital, your body is no longer responding to chemotherapy. We have a clinical trial or an immunotherapy that just came out. And when I heard clinical trial, I'm thinking like, I didn't know we were there that quickly. (laughs) Because in my mind, clinical trial means like there are no options. Last ditch effort, maybe. Right, right. And so to me, that was really scary. And so 
after much debate uh, and conversation, I ended up with my husband deciding at the time to do the immunotherapy because it didn't negate us from joining the clinical trial later. Well, I did the immunotherapy and I, my body was set into a cytokine release storm, which is where it basically shuts down and tries to kill itself. <laughs> and came out of that. Yeah, <laughs> I know. And so it was like three days of spiking 105 degree fevers. And I will be completely honest with you. I thought it was an hour. And my husband goes, no, that was three straight days. Oh. I don't <laughs> like the brain does some wild things to protect it, protect your, protect you from yourself um, and what you go through. So somehow came out of that. And so we were like, okay, I guess we're going on the clinical trial now. Did all of the testing and they test you for everything because they need a baseline for, for your body. And a week before I was supposed to go on it, it was shut down. And we said, okay, that happened. Now what? And they were like, e we don't have anything. And I was like, oh, what do you mean you don't have anything? Like there's no clinical trial somewhere else. They're like, well, there is at another hospital. There's only one going on right now. But we can't guarantee that you get on it and there's a wait list. And with clinical trials, there's no line skipping. So I was like, great, that's not helpful, but can you still put my name on the list? So obviously they did. And I said, so what do we do in the meantime? They're like, we basically keep you alive with blood and platelets for as long as possible. I'm like, that's not a great plan in my opinion. <laughs> and it's like keeping you alive with bread and water, right? Like it's right. <laughs> right. Like here's the bare minimum and we're just going to hope it all works out. And I was like, mentally, I was like, oh my God, this is, we're in territory that number one, I never thought I'd be in. And number two, like, how did we get here so quickly? Yeah. Um, and what is the time period that we're talking about here between your second diagnosis, your immunotherapy, your clinical trial waiting period. Um, yeah. So it was about, so the, my relapse happened and then about 60 ish days. Wow. Yeah. So I was in the hospital the entire time. Um, and so it was scary. It was, um, it was really not somewhere that I thought I would be. And I don't think anyone thought that there wouldn't be options, I guess, either. And so they, we were basically like told to wait. And I said, well, I am going a little stir crazy inside of this box. And I was like, can I at least go home? And I was like, I promise I will come back for as many blood and platelet transfusions as I need to do uh, or whatever you need me to do. I will come back. I go, I just need, I can't be here anymore. And so they said yes to that. And they proceeded with that. In the meantime, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society doctor's conference had just ended and they came back with two pages of research for an immunotherapy that was not for my cancer and said, do you want to try this? And handed us the research, which wasn't a lot. And there was 114 participants, I think, and 11 had the disease that I had. The outcomes were not good. And so my husband and I read it, 
he did all the research because I was like, I can't Google things. It'll drive like, and not that there was anything really to even Google. <laughs> um, but I was just like, if you want to look it up, that's fine. I'm like, I don't, I can't, I can't have that information in my brain. And so they sent us home from the hospital. And I say us because my husband was there every single day with me um, and every single night. And they basically wrote a letter of compassion to the FDA and Pfizer, but in the meantime, told me to settle my affairs. And I ended up going home and having some really hard conversations that I never thought I'd have in my life, let alone at 32 years old. And we waited. And finally, after I think two and a half, three months, they came back to us and they were like, you're approved. Let's go. Let's do this. And I said, okay, this immunotherapy, how many rounds are we doing? We're like, we're going to start with four and see what happens. I was like, okay. Because the whole goal now was to get me into remission to then do a stem cell transplant. Okay. So this was my moonshot. This was the, all my eggs were in this basket. There were no other options for me at this point. And so I don't know by some miracle it works. So we were like, okay, let's do some cell transplant. Let's go. So we immediately went back into the hospital. My brother is my donor. He is, um, so I had my stem cell transplant and six months later I relapsed again and I didn't see it coming and I didn't feel anything. I didn't, they caught it so early because I was getting blood work so frequently um, that I, I was devastated. It was like being not only kicked while you were down, but like being stabbed by a thousand little like knives at once. And just as you're picking your head up, they're like, nope. And, yeah. and right back down. Yeah. Like and this time I was not in a place physically, mentally, or emotionally to fight. Like I just, I was depleted of everything. I was not in a, I was still trying to recover from a lot of the side effects from the stem cell transplant. And so I just wasn't in that head space, physical space to be able to do it. And I, I started crying and I said, I looked up at my husband. I said, I can't do this. I just can't do it. I don't have it in me. And he, he just goes, whatever you decide is what we're going to do. And I'm sorry, I get emotional like thinking about it because it's just like, I never thought I would say that. Like, just give up. And as I was crying, and I don't honestly know how long I was crying for, my dad popped in my head. And he was like, "You, he would be so disappointed in you if you just gave up. And I was like, oh, like, of course he would. And I <laughs> got mad at myself. And I was like, mad at him for coming into my brain and that's when I made a deal with the universe and I said I don't know how this is going to turn out I go but we're done after this I go but this time I'm fighting not for me but for everyone that got me to this point because I don't care if I live or die but I know they do and 
I looked back up at my husband. I said, okay, one more time, but we're done. After that, I can't keep playing like whack-a-mole with cancer for the rest of my life. I was like, I'm either going to live or I'm going to die. And there's not going to be this in between. And he goes, okay. And so we ended up doing uh, four more rounds of immunotherapy because they still had to get me into remission to then get to a stem cell transplant again. So we did four more rounds and I got into remission. And instead of going to a stem cell transplant, which was kind of the plan, they go, we're just going to wait and see what happens. <laughs> like, oh, what do you mean I'm going to wait and see what happens? You're just going to wait for cancer to come back. And I lived like that for like six months. And I finally asked them in an appointment. I said, do you think I can go live life again? And my oncologist was like, sure, <laughs> go for it. And I was like, okay, great. How do you do that? And they were like, we don't know. We're like, we just killed cancer here. Right. I'm, I'm leaving at five to go home and be with my family. That's what I'm doing. Right. You do you. Yeah. And I was like, oh, what? <laughs> Your story is so remarkable. So from first diagnosis to after the third time re remission, like the end of the third time is like three, three years. Yeah. About three, what? three and a half okay. years. Oh my gosh. And so. Yeah. I, I'm just curious, uh, you know, and I want to thank you again for your vulnerability because you are helping people all over the world by sharing your story. Um, it, we'll never know the impact, but I know it's big. What I'm curious about is, you know, you hear a lot about, you know, keeping a positive mindset, you know, because the negativity fuels, it's almost like fuel for the cancer. Um, how are you keeping a positive mindset? Maybe the first time I can give you that, but you relapse, you have a stroke, you relapse again. What are you holding on to at that point? Other than you need to live for your husband or you need to live for your dad. What, how are you trying to keep yourself? And maybe you're failing, right? Cause I understand that too. It's like, you know, especially when you're in the hospital, you have a really hard time staying positive with all the noises and the smells and it's not your sheets and you can't really do anything. How are you keeping yourself like sharp and positive and, um, you know, finding joy in, in the smallest of moments? Yeah, that was the challenge. Um, so for me, what I did was I never stopped moving. So I would walk at least 20 minutes a day, even in the hospital, I would just do circles around on the floor, which was, it's maddening at times. Um, I honestly looked for laughter a lot of times, like whether my husband's a very funny person. And so we would find those moments to laugh, even if it were at my expense of like, when I had a stroke and I couldn't move my, my left arm at all. It was like a dead appendage, just like hanging out. So I would flail it around <laughs> with my right arm. And sometimes I'd accidentally, and I say that in quotes, hit him with it. And I go, Oh, <laughs> I don't know what's happening. So finding like the funny and the humor 
despite like not being in this like horrible, awful situation, um, really helped mentally. I think also I never thought it was the end, even though despite the evidence on paper, I never thought it was the end. And I always thought, well, if there's options available, like something's going to work at some point, I just have to stay alive for that. And so like that drive of internally going, like just stay alive. Like you don't have to, like the cure might not be right this second, but just keep staying alive, especially the second and the third time long enough for something to come out to, to save my life was like really internally the conversation I kept having with myself. That's incredible. I think, um, I think it's really hard, you know, to, to try to find a bright light when you're, you're being told on the other end, maybe like that, like that's the response you're getting from the experts. So I, I, I mean, I laugh now cause, cause we can, but, um, you're, you're like, am I giving you hope? Cause I'm kind of hoping you give me hope here. So I, I really applaud you, but one of the things that you share in your story, um, I'm not sure you've touched on it just yet, but you did say like on your website, for example, it didn't take you long to realize that surviving wasn't the end. It was just the beginning. So tell us more about what you mean when you say that surviving, you know, kind of like wasn't the end game. No, for me, I somehow handled going through that for basically almost four years straight really well. Um, mentally, physically, emotionally, my journey began when I survived. And then the emotions came out of like, what did you just go through? What did, what just happened? And mentally and physically and emotionally, everything, my world changed. Like the trajectory I was on that, that all of it was gone. Like the, the expectation of having a family or maybe want, you know, that was gone from a biological standpoint for me. Um, my career, my, a lot of friends and family just disappeared. Uh, you know, everything that I had known was gone and I was not the same. And I, it crushed me. I basically had a nervous breakdown because the expectation of what everyone was telling me was like, just get through it. You're going to, everything's going to be okay. And then I got through it and I was like, I'm, I'm not okay. Like what's wrong with me thinking I'm something's wrong. Like I'm broken. And then the shame of like not being able to share that I'm not okay with everyone around me because everyone was like, but you're alive. You know? So then you're just like going inward going, yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay. Until you're not okay. And you finally admit to yourself, I'm not okay. And that happened when I came home from work, dropped my bag on the floor and just fell to my knees crying in my kitchen floor. And my husband was like, what happened at work? And I was like, it has nothing to do with work. I go, I am not okay. I go, I don't, what I'm feeling, what I, what's happening inside of me, I in that moment, I genuinely was like, what did I survive for? Because this mm -hmm. isn't living. Like I'm 
scared cancer is coming back every single day. I wake up thinking it's coming back. I hate my job. I look like I was so discombobulated. And that night, like I just, something snapped inside of me as I was ugly crying in front of my dad, face down in a pillow. And my mother-in-law was there because my husband called both because he didn't know what to do. Something snapped inside of me and said, you need to figure it out or you're not going to survive. Wow. That's so powerful. I think a lot of people... Um probably don't understand the level of PTSD that you go through and the extreme highs and lows of every day. Um, I have somebody in, in my network whose daughter um, is a cancer survivor. I mean, many people in my network, obviously, right? If cancer touches everyone, but this woman in particular, um, I'm not sure she'll ever get over that I don't know if it's a label or, or, or seeing seeing her daughter that way because it's just absolutely I, I I can't even think of the word for it but I mean the, to me that's what it sounds like you were going through is you were having PTSD it's sort of like you know when a soldier comes home from being yeah. deployed and they just go to like Dunkin Donuts and order a coffee that just that's not real life like. I just did real life combat is like what's going on out there. Like, how do you, how do you just go back to work and be Casey? I couldn't, that was the yeah. problem, you know, I, uh, and I am technically clinically diagnosed with PTSD. Um, and the only solutions that they offered me were medication. And I did not want to take medication because it does, to me, that doesn't solve the root problem. Exactly. The root cause. It masks a lot of things. It helps you not feel those things, but it doesn't heal. And I was like, for the first time in my life, I was willing to do the work to actually fix the problem and the root cause. And that night that broke me, like I realized like I need to do the work internally and, and and go to places I don't want to go and to figure it out. And so I like, cause there's so much support during your treatment, but there's nothing afterward. And the things that I tried through cancer organizations and hospitals, like, although they mean well, the practitioners, they really do. Unless you've gone through it, like there was a disconnect. Yeah. And, you're healthy now. Yeah. 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 And, and what they were offering was like, that's not helpful. Like, like they think it's helpful, but it's not. And I was like, so I started like just talking to experts, researching. I went on a healing retreat. I couldn't afford at the time. I got my grubby little hands on every self-help book I could get, uh, you know, trying to find the solutions that I was looking for that to help me. And a lot of the self-help books didn't help, but I, it led me to a question that I formed myself to lead my, myself to the answer. And so it was a lot of like, okay, I get what they're saying and kind of like, how can I apply that to myself? Well, and that's kind of how the happier hustle was born, right? It was born out of necessity because what you needed didn't exist. So 
you know, you're a pretty tenacious person. You just created it. So tell yeah. us more about the happier hustle. Yeah. So the happier hustle was born out of anger. I'm not going to lie <laughs> um, <laughs> because I was just angry at the medical system for failing us in survivorship. Like how could you set us up to live, but yet not give us the tools that we need to go live life. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I started to talk about like my own personal struggles and how I figured it out. And the more I did it organically, the more women were like, what did you do? How did you do it? And I didn't realize that I wasn't, I wasn't like the only one that was struggling with these things. Cause at the time I thought I was like, I'm broken. <laughs> Something's wrong with me. No one's talking about anything. Everyone's really grateful to be alive. Why don't I feel that way? And I finally was just like talking about it so openly without shame. And that's when people started reaching out and I was like, oh, I'm not the only one. Oh, I can actually help people. Oh, so I put it together. Uh, I put together programs, workshops, one-on-one uh, -on -one work uh, to help others live again after surviving. Because the definition of surviving is you just didn't die. That doesn't mean you're living. Right. There's a big difference. Let that settle in, everyone. <laughs> there is a huge difference between surviving existing, which you also did for a period of time, and really like thriving and living. I put your Instagram and Facebook up um, because sometimes I get so into these stories that I... <laughs> forget and it's the end and I'm like, here's all the links. So I want to make sure we can um, expose your Instagram and Facebook to um, those that want to connect with you at the happier hustle. Um, you know, you are so gentle uh, in your approach. How I'm just curious, how do you carry the messages that you've learned? How do you carry that forward in a really gentle way? Um, especially as you see people complaining about the most mundane things. <laughs> like I, there's a group in my town that every day they're complaining about like this little nuance and that little nuance. And I'm like, oh, oh boy. Like, it, you know, and I just, I can't even get into it because I, I just, it, it's toxic and it never, it'll never result in somebody finding joy, right? So it's like not even <laughs> worth it. But, you know, you have been to the edge and so, you know, you, you definitely, um, you know, have a significant perspective. How is it that you work with people like that, that don't? And um, yeah, I'll, I'll stop there. Um, so I lead by example. And I, I believe like, when you start to understand where it all comes from, like this programming that we've might've had for decades of our life, like we don't have to stay in that space where, where we only see the cup half full. We can actually see it differently. Like yeah. we don't have to see it one way. And I think when you show people that if you're willing to change, it's possible. And that also 
to that person who is complaining about the everyday things, like that is their heart. And so I'm really compassionate towards like what you're experiencing is your heart. And that's terrible. And for me, like, I don't want anyone to compare what I went through to their journey. Like what I went through, I hope no one has to go through. I genuinely like, so I never compare it. And people always come to me and they're like, but you've been through so much. I go, but you're, you've also been through a lot. Like don't gaslight yourself just because what I went through was very different. I talk a lot about comparative suffering. You're at, I think you and I talked about this story before, but I want to make sure listeners hear it because you may not be diagnosed and survive cancer three times and have a stroke, but that doesn't mean you're not suffering. You just don't have, you know, Casey's story, but you have your own. And I can remember our, um, our younger son was in the hospital right after he was born a week. We brought the priest in. I mean, you name it. There was mm-hmm. a lot going on. He was in Boston, not out here in the suburbs. Right. So it was a really intense time. Um, and I can remember my brother-in-law calling and being like, I was so upset that, you know, my daughter had pink eye and she had to stay home from school and it threw off my whole day. And I'm such a jerk because, you know, you're sitting there praying for your newborn son to make it. And I said, but that's your biggest thing. You can't compare your biggest thing to mine. You're not going through mine. And I hope you never do. But one day you might. And my biggest thing will be a lot less significant, right? But it, it, still, it still matters. And so I think that's what you're saying too is, you know, don't engage in comparative suffering. But, you know, also be uh, cognizant and aware that people have things that they're going through that you know nothing about. And so also be careful that you're not triggering or grandstanding or gaslighting, as you say, um, and just be respectful of other people and their journeys. Right. Because although somebody could tell me, oh, yeah, you know, I'm really frustrated. My car didn't start today and blah, blah, blah. But also there's like they might be dealing with like their grandmother dying or something like you never know. And so like, I'm just like, yeah, that sucks. Like your car won't start. And that's frustrating. <laughs> I always like, tell people too, like some, sometimes the, ba- you know, we, I, when I'm working with clients, I'm always talking about like, how can we celebrate the wins? Sometimes mm-hmm. the only win that you can come up with is that you woke up today. The right? day was that disjointed and that's okay. But other days you have some really significant wins. Make sure you honor those too. It's like a seesaw. As much as you want to honor the good, you've also got to honor the areas in which you struggle, you know, because together they make up your experience. Um, I want to make sure we call out your community that you've created. Um, It's called Thriving Through Cancer. What can you tell us about its charter, uh, the member experience, and um, maybe, you know, some future ideas you have for folks that are considering joining it? So it is a, an experience that will help guide you from the minute you are diagnosed to long after your journey ends. Um, from what is it that you, w- like all of the advice from survivors of like, what is it that we wish we would have known the minute we were diagnosed, like questions to ask, what to do, 
who to who to con get in contact with to through treatment like what we all did to you know get through in the best physical mental and emotional state then survivorship like what are we doing to help with the fear and the anxiety and physically rebuild our bodies and keep in this mindset of of going and dealing with the ramifications of surviving then long after like you know there's still a lot of work and personal development that you can do and so I feel like once you're in that zone, you kind of want to keep going for a lot of women. And, but a lot of women are like, but where do I go? Because I'm, I'm good with cancer now, but like, I still want to improve on this and that. And, and so like, I just wanted to create a community that we just support the entire experience of cancer. And we're going to do exercise classes, mild movement, we talk about the fear and the anxiety. We have social meetups. We're going to do everything that I wanted to do from Jump Street. And it just took a long time to get there. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, so that is called Thriving Through Cancer. I also want to make sure we share the book that you wrote, which is available on Amazon called Finding Your Way Back to Heart Center, Cancer Treatment Ended, Now What? Awesome yep. title. <laughs> um, yep. And I'll make sure that we put the link in the show notes. Um, any, any juicy tidbits you want to, you want to share anything? Um, you want to make sure, you know, potential readers uh, know that they can get. Yeah. The book was truly written with a hundred percent vulnerability. And I relay a lot of experiences that I do not typically share um, day to day that have happened in my life to relay the experience. And there's a lot of, it's interactive. So there's a lot of questions in there mm -hmm. that I asked myself, especially in the beginning to find answers. So it is an interactive experience. It is very vulnerable and it is real and raw and honest. And it poured out for me um, because I just was like, there, there were no books, there were no resources. And I was like, we need something. You know, what's funny is, uh, you know, I, I talk a lot about joy, obviously. And people always say, you know, you don't live in a bubble. I'm like, no, I don't live in a bubble. I have very, very bad days and I have very <laughs> challenging days, but I think you can still try to see things from a different perspective. But I love that you poured out in a way that, you know, you're so relatable, you're so authentic and people are going to really attach to that because that's what they need. They don't want to be, um, I got to edit myself for the FCC BS. Uh, <laughs> they don't want to be, you know, lied to or, um, have anything sugar coated. Just tell me what it is and I can deal with it, but you know, be authentic. So I think that's, Amazing. Um, I want to make sure we get to our final question because I try to ask this for every single guest, um, just as a source of inspiration for the for the audience um, who maybe lacks joy. Um, what is some sort of daily practice that you can share um, that helps you feel grounded and firmly rooted in joy? We want to inspire people to maybe come up with their own practice. I certainly have, you know, three or four things I do every day. Um, and so want to hear what that looks like for you. 
It's not, like you said, it's not one thing. Um, I wake up, I do gratitude every single day because so much of my life I did take for granted. And, you know, from the simplest thing is like, I got to have a warm cup of coffee to like the sun was out and it's beautiful and acknowledging that. Um, I exercise every, uh, every day, like some sort of movement, whether it's just walking my dog or something, it really helps mentally. I journal every day. I meditate every day. So it's not just one thing, but all of those things bring me joy in the morning with the quiet, quiet, like before, uh, before the noise of, of life starts to happen. And it's just, that sets my day up to succeed. And that brings me joy. And I try to find something to laugh at every day, even if I have to like go search for it. <laughs> and sometimes you do. And sometimes yeah. it's right there on Instagram. Um, so you teed up journaling. So I'm going to take the bait. Um, so I've written a journal. I'll post it here. Um, it's a bestseller on Amazon called The Daily Dose of Joy. It contains prompts. And I always like to bring it up in case people are, you know, like, I don't journal. What do I, what do I do? I've got it right here. Um, isn't she cute? Uh, but there, there are little prompts in there and little things that maybe um, just cause you to kind of look at things differently. But with journaling, it's to me, it's the fastest way to get the information that is in here completely stuck and on repeat out onto paper. And you're able to see what your beliefs are versus what the truth is, which is very often not the same thing. They might kind of look like each other, but they're not always the same thing. And journaling really helps you to get there faster than any other method I'm aware of. So I'm glad to hear it's, <clears throat> excuse me, part of your daily practice. It's part of mine. Meditation is too. Gratitude is too. It just really helps to set your day up in the right mindset. So you can look at things from like an appreciative lens um, and one of abundance because the world isn't perfect, but we woke up today. So how can we maximize today? In the, in the greatest way possible. So I'm so thankful that you, you shared your story today, um, that you were willing to come on the show and be so vulnerable. And I know you've inspired, you know, thousands and thousands of women everywhere, uh, men too, uh, but I, I generally focus on women, but women, <clears throat> you know, to, uh, you know, explore their mindset, get connected with other people. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I expect that we'll hear lots of great comments about um, your time today. Oh, thank you so much. I, I appreciate uh, being here and um, you allowing me to share my story. Thank you. Well, that was another episode of Joy Unleashed. Make sure you subscribe to my YouTube channel so you get the latest episode in your inbox and follow me at the Colleen Greco. You'll also follow Casey at The Happier Hustle. Have a great day. Thank you for tuning in to Joy Unleashed. As always, it's my honor to be your host and joyologist, Colleen Greco. Follow me at The Colleen Greco on Instagram for daily motivation and inspiration. And don't forget to leave my show a review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, sisters.